Go to 1 Samuel tonight as we, as we get to the place of understanding uh, Psalm 52. Uh, David, uh, this, this uh, psalm is attributed to David. And you'll note um, uh, at the beginning of the psalm, how many of you have a study Bible that kind of uh, tells you a bit about the, the chapter, what this is about? Some t- some title work, yeah. Uh, my Bible uh, notes that this is uh, a psalm about the futility of boastful wickedness, and then then he goes on to write for the choir director, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, uh, and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech, and and. Uh, that's where I want to start tonight, just so we get some context here about what's going on in David's heart and mind, in his soul, uh, in, that would lead him to uh, write this psalm. Um, psalm, uh, or excuse me, 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22 highlight the, this story. We see here David fleeing from Saul. And he makes a covenant with Jonathan, uh, Saul's son. And he goes to a, a little place called Nob. Um, I love that name, Nob. Uh, it's so simple. Um, I think of Nob Hill, you know. And, and in, in many respects, that's kind of where it is. In fact, uh, we've got a, a map I'd like to show you where Nob is. If you look on the map, right there, Within that circle, you see Nob, and you see uh, Jebwa. And, and that Nob is right there, just north of Jebwa. It's important to understand that Nob was a place where uh, it was a, a kind of a, a gathering for priests. And Ahimelech was there as a priest of the Lord. And, and uh, that's where David... Uh, encountered uh, great hunger, and he went into uh, to speak with Ahimelech and ask for bread. And, and Ahimelech says, uh, "Well, we have no bread except except the the holy showbread that is set out, consecrated to the Lord." And he ends up giving that to David. That's in First uh, Samuel twenty one. Uh, verse 6. And not only does he give him that consecrated bread, he also gives him, get this, the sword of Goliath. It's interesting that that's where the sword of Goliath would be. So moving on, the next verse uh, we, we read there in Psalm, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 21, verse 7. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. So here is this this, uh, man who is, uh, you could call him an employee of of Saul. And he happens to be there when, when Ahimelech gives this bread and the sword of Goliath to David. Then we, then we read that David returns to Gath. Now, where in the word world is Gath? Well, if you look to the west of Nob, you will see Gath, the southwest. And you'll note that it is in the land of the Philistines. And it's there that David, uh, uh, who knows why he goes there? I guess the, that question isn't really answered. But he goes and he feigns being crazy so that he will not be captured or, or imprisoned by the Philistines. And, and uh, then he returns, the scripture says, he returns to the cave of Adullam, which is directly to the east of Gath. You see Adullam right there on the latter or the lower part of the, the uh the circle, Adullam. And it's a cave where David found refuge uh, numerous times. 
in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, uh, verses 1 and 2, we read, So David departed from there and escaped to a cave, the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. It's really interesting that that's, remember David was the runt of the litter, right? Now his father and his brothers are, are coming to him. Not only that, it goes on to say, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. What a motley crew, right? I mean, this, this group of, of people that were gathered around David, it sounds to me like they were a bunch of losers. It's really interesting to me that that's, that's who David drew to himself. And he became captain over them. Not only did they come, but he began to train them. He began to equip them to become even his warriors, those who were in distress, those who were in debt, those who were discontented. And there were about 400 men with him. That's a sizable group of discontents, right? (laughs) How in the world? And it is, it is striking to me that, that is the, those are the people that, that, uh, that were drawn to David. We read after that that David takes his parents to Moab. And the reason he does that is to keep them safe because he knows that their life is in peril even as his own life is in peril by, by virtue of the fact that King Saul is pursuing him. Now, where in the world is Moab? Well, Moab is not on this map that we just saw, but it's on the other side. It's on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. So it's quite a ways away. And there his parents lived in safety. Uh, 1 Samuel 22, uh, 6 through 19, uh, we read about Doeg the Edomite who kills Ahimelech and 84 other priests, plus women and children and oxen and donkeys and sheep. And the son of Ahimelech, Abathar, escapes and tells David what happened. Now, it's important to understand. Now, where is Ahimelech? He's in Nob, right? He's in the house of of the, the priesthood there. And he is there with 85 other or 84 other priests, Scripture says that there were 84 men killed, plus women and children. Not only that, there were donkeys and sheep and oxen that were slaughtered as well. They didn't leave any stone unturned. They, Saul's men came and, and, and totally annihilated them. And it was done at the hands of, of Doeg the Edomite. Verses 20 to 23 of 1 Samuel 20, uh, we read that, David assumes responsibility. He assumes responsibility for the death of Ahimelech and his family. And it's this grief, it's this grief that is the context for Psalm 52. Can you imagine having that weight of guilt upon your your shoulders, feeling like you're responsible for the death of these the priests? There in Nob, not only that, but the women and children as well. David is is smitten with grief. And that's where this psalm uh, is written from. Let's read together Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. Selah. Does your Bible say Selah there? Okay, in some some, um, translations you won't see that word, but in others you will, and it means pause. Why do you boast, O evil mighty man. Why do you boast? That word boast means, of course, to show off. That we, we see 
that word in our culture, meaning the very same thing, to show off. And then it goes further to, to be clamorously foolish, making a total fool of yourself in the midst of your boasting and to rave about it. Now, it's important to note as well that boasting is based on a really big lie. And that big lie started in the Garden of Eden. And that big lie is that thing that says we deceive ourselves uh, and manipulate people for our own ends. Do you see that in the Garden of Eden? Yeah, Eve was deceived into believing that she would become like God herself. If, if she ate of the fruit. And then she takes the fruit to Adam and manipulates Adam into eating the fruit. And it, we see that big lie passed down generation to generation to generation. And it's endemic in our culture. It's endemic in our culture even today. We have this idea that we can command our own destiny. You've heard of uh, the American dream? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? Have you ever tried to do that? That's just plain stupidity, isn't it? You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but we talk about it all the time. And we act as though we are the masters of our own destiny. We are self-sufficient. We're autonomous. And as a result, we end up pursuing pleasure for ourselves, self-fulfillment. And we ask this question over and over. And I think it is, again, it's endemic in, even in our culture. What is there in it for me? Do you hear that? You hear that echoed all over the place. So we see that going on. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man, in your boasting why do you boast even in your evil? Um, are you struck by the, the, um, the upside downness of, of those boasting in their sin in our culture? It's, it, it is totally upside down from what God intends and yet they even take pride in it and boast of it contrast that however with the next line the loving kindness of god endures all day long <laughs> the loving kindness of god remember that beautiful hebrew word do you remember the loving kindness can you say it with me chesed Chesed, come on, just say it just for fun. Chesed, yeah. It means, it's, it speaks of that covenant love, that love that is committed from the very beginning by God to his people. And it is not based on circumstance. It is not based upon performance. It is based upon his promise. It's based in his character. That's where we started tonight. That it is this love of God that is part of who he is. He cannot deny himself. He cannot, he cannot be, not be loved. Does that, he cannot not be loved. Does that make sense? It is, it is impossible. And it endures all day long. You see, boasting is, is, speaks of this inflated ego that is going to end up being deflated. It, it is a false front. But God's covenant love is permanent, even into including all of eternity. Now let's go on. He, uh, he, David, in verse 2, begins to lash out in grief and anger. Remember the context again. He has taken on this guilt for the death of Ahimelech and that entire small town. He bears that deeply and he begins to lash out. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O 
O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. And there again, we have that word selah. Verse 2 speaks of the power of the tongue. James, the apostle James, is very eloquent in what he writes. You may be familiar with it in chapter 3 of his epistle. He speaks of the tongue as being a fire that sets ablaze a forest. Let me just read it to you. For we all stumble in many ways, he admits. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits in horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. They, they are so great and are driven by strong winds and still directed by a very small rudder. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and sets on fire and is set on uh, on fire by hell uh, that thought set on fire the course of our life have you ever encountered somebody who has um, who has been victimized by a lie and it sets their course in their life it 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 dictates how they end up living the rest of their life because they're constantly um, uh, hammered with that lie. That's, that's what the Apostle James is saying. That's what the tongue can do. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed as it had is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out the same, from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. The Apostle James is underlining the fact that, that the tongue is profoundly powerful. And that's what we see here in verse 2. Like a sharp razor a worker of deceit. That de the word deceit is basically those, those who are invested in lying. Have you ever met anybody who doesn't know the difference between a lie and the truth? There are such. And, and destruction is in their pathway. That's the wake of their life. Verse 3, loving evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking right. How do, let me ask you this. How do we measure truth? How do we measure what is true? Okay, we, we measure what is truth by, by holding it up to God himself. Absolutely. In our day and age, we talk a lot about facts, right? I remember um, years and years ago, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's all we need, just the facts. Sometimes finding the facts actually requires some effort on our part, doesn't it? We have to dig through all the stuff that's been embellished to find what's really there. And can you... Can you always trust every single, every single um, report? What happens when the reports 
are conflicting? How do you dig down to the truth? Will you go to the source, right? And if you don't go to the source, chances are you're not going to find out what the truth is. Then we again have this word Selah. It's a big pause. It, in fact, I, I think David is saying, just let me exhale here. I've just unloaded my grief and my anger. I need to exhale. And then he goes on. Oh, and you love all the words that devour Oh, deceitful tongue. But God will break you down. God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. And then we have that word again, Selah. It's almost as, he, if, is, as if David is just pouring out his heart, exhaling and then pouring out more grief and anger again and again. It's a continued thought, the power of the tongue, devouring. <laughs> the actual thought there is gulping down, swallowing. And figuratively, it means destruction. And it's important to note here that destruction is found in deceit. Destruction is the result of deceit. But God will break you down forever. Forever. It means that he will destroy that destruction. He will snatch you up, tear you away. That's imagery of tearing the tongue out. Look what it says. Look what it says. I will snatch you up. I will tear you away from your tent. I will uproot you from the land of the living. He's speaking about bringing death and an end to deceit. And then again, a pause, Selah. He catches his breath again. And then in verse six, we see a turn. David says, and the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him saying, behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. The righteous, the word righteous means lawful. The one who is made right. He will see, he, he will see, that means he will live, he will practice, he will be walking in truthfulness. And justice enables us to see clearly. Um, Paul mentioned it earlier in his thoughts. Boastfulness is focused on ourselves, is it not? It's focused on self, puffing that up. But the righteous focus on the truth. There's a big difference. And it's beyond themselves. It's not in themselves. It's beyond themselves. And they fear. They will fear. The righteous, the righteous will see and fear. Wait a second. What do the righteous have to fear? Does that make sense? I thought the righteous were in the, in the good place and not fearful. Well, the truth is, if you're looking at the truth, it's awesome and it's fearful. There are consequences for deceit. There are consequences for lying. There are consequences for boasting in ourselves. And those who are righteous recognize the truth of that reality. And it causes fear and awe. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. 
But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give thanks to thee forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name for it is good in the presence of thy godly ones. But as for me, this is indeed the turning point of the psalm. It speaks of a decision, a very willful decision, a stake in the ground, a declaration of intent. David says, it's not going to be that way with me. I'm not going to get caught up in this boastful pride. I'm not going to be drawn away by deceit. I am not going to do that. But as for me, it's a moment of decision. And, and I have to say that moments of decisions are really important for us as, as believers, as, as citizens of this world, because they, that is how we live intentionally. Instead of having life happen to us, we get to be the purveyors of life. We get to be intentional in how we live. Instead of being tossed by every wind of doctrine or circumstance, we live intentionally. He says, I'm like a green olive tree. Do you know how long olive trees live? For somebody, did you say forever? <laughs> you, you could say they live for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. They're well-established. It's interesting that, that um, uh, uh, an olive tree yields about six gallons of olive oil every other year. Doesn't sound like a whole lot. But over a lifetime, wow. And, and, and he, David likes him, likens himself to that. He speaks of the fact that he is fruitful and he's evergreen. It's, uh, olive trees, we have them here in the valley, right? They are always green. They, yeah, they shed their leaves every once in a while, but it, there's a green leaf right behind it. It's right there. It's not, they're not, uh, they don't go into dormancy. And, and, and he's there in the house of the Lord. He's there in the house of the God because that is where God lives. It speaks of the fact of the presence of God. And that's, that's David's place in the presence of God. Now, where, where is the house of God? Think about it. If it speaks of the presence of God, you could also jump to the question of where is the presence of God? God is omnipresent, is he not? He's omnipresent. He is with us always. That's the promise of the scripture. He is with us always. It's a simple fact. So living in the awareness of God's presence is wisdom, but ignoring the presence of God is foolishness. It's just mindlessness. And yet that's where the boastful man is. That's where the proud live in ignoring the presence of God because the presence of God unfolds the truth of their frailty, unfolds the truth of their limits. I trust in the loving kindness of God. That loving kindness, again, is that ultimate trustworthy promise. It's not going to change. It's part of God's character. It's who he is. I trust that in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I have to tell you, eternity began years ago. Your eternity began when you were born. It's, it's not just out there. It's forever and ever, and it includes now. I will, I will give thanks to you forever because you have done it. I will give thanks. Have you ever thought about the power of thanksgiving? The power of giving thanks helps us reorient our thinking over and over. I tell you, if there is a, if there is a habit to get into uh, every day, 
it, would, it should include thanksgiving. Finding something to be thankful for. Because you have done it. You have done it. It speaks of the fact that it, it, it has been accomplished. In the Hebrew, there's, there actually is no object. It's, it's, uh, it basically says, because you have acted, God. You have acted. And, and uh, what we see here is David is worshiping the Lord. He is worshiping the Lord because of his covenant love with him, for him. And the fact that God is a God of action. And then he says, I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. I will wait. That word wait means to bind together, to collect, to gather together. The best imagery that I see in that is it, it is like a vine that clings to a trellis. It binds itself together around the trellis. It clings to it. So read that in the context, I will cling to your name. I will wait on your name. And the name of God speaks of who he is, his presence, and he is good, signed, sealed, delivered. That's where we started tonight, right? The goodness of God, it's part and parcel of who he is. Now, we have about 15 minutes and we're going to race, okay? Psalm 53. It's interesting, Psalm 53 is, if you look at it, I encourage you, perhaps go home and do this. Uh, put Psalm uh, 14 side by side with Psalm 53, and you'll discover that they are virtually a mirror of one another. Verses 5 and 6 uh, are, are, are the only changes that you see. Uh, verse 5 in Psalm 53 is an addition and it's interesting because um, you'll, you'll see uh, that, that this, this uh, illustrates the fact that the word of God is applicable in many situations. And here we see a very good picture of the fact that, that David takes that and makes an adjustment to his previous psalm. Because it fits with a new context. And that context in this, in this psalm, Psalm 53, has to do with warfare. If we look at the heading, we see um, that this is a maskal of David. Um, it is a maskal. It is a skillful or contemplative psalm. It is meant to make you think. And that, that uh, thinking is something that is included in the, it, throughout the scripture. We are forced to stop and contemplate because there's something that God desires to teach us in the midst of, in the midst of his scripture. Always, always. And so, so David reworks Psalm 14. Um, verse 5 uh, is an addition to Psalm 14. He says, there, were great, the, uh, the, there they were great in fear, where no fear had been, for God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Again, that's militaristic language, and it speaks of the scattering of bones of those who were camped against the Lord. And that's an addition. Um, so now we're going to skate on to Psalm 54. I promised we would get through, didn't I? We see here a prayer for the defense against enemies. And... Um, it is a maskal of David, again, a skillful, skillfully written psalm. 
When Ziphites came uh, uh, and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? Here we find a, a very uh, uh, specific context again. And in the life of David, we see this story in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Previously, we talked about chapters 21, 22 of 1 Samuel. This is chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. I'd encourage you, go home and read those chapters and you'll discover how they fit very, very closely to what's going on here. In, Psalm, or in Samuel, 1 Samuel 23, um, we, we read the story. Now David came, verse 15, David came, became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. If we look at the, the map again real quickly, you will see that Ziph is, you see the word Judah down here? That's the southern part of, of the kingdom. Ziph is just to the right of Judah, the word Judah. And it's a wilderness area. It is, it's, it's a um, very desolate desert, if you will. And David is hiding there. Um, and Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in the Lord. Thus he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. And you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. And, my, and Saul, my father, knows that also. It's interesting that Jonathan would say that to David. So the two men, two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. So this is the place where David made a covenant with Jonathan. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hilkah, which is on the south, uh, on the south side of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul and do so, and our part shall be to surrender him to the king's hand. This is where Psalm 54 is birthed. And we read these words. Save me, O God, by thy name, and vindicate me by thy power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to my words, the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. And there again we see that word, Selah, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your power. The name of the Lord is his presence. And it speaks of his power. Vindication means to, to judge or to plead a cause. And, the, and David is saying, Lord, you need to do that for me. You need to vindicate me. What does the scripture say? Vind, uh, that Vengeance belongs to who? It's the Lord's. It's not something for us to take in our hand. Give ear. He says, hear, give ear to my prayer. And I, and I have to ask the question, who does the Lord listen to? Remember last week? Look at, look at it. Just back a page or so. Psalm 51 What does it say? Who does it say God listens to? Verse 17. Yes. A broken, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Contrast that with Psalm 52, where we were speaking, David spoke of the proud, the haughty, the, the boasting one. God listens to those who are downcast, the broken spirit. Verse, uh, Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. 
the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's who God listens to. I don't know about you, but for me, that's great comfort. In the midst of my need, I can bank on the fact that God is going to hear. Verse 3, strangers have risen against me. The people of, of the Ziph, Ziph area of Ziph, the Ziphites. That's a crazy name, isn't it? Sounds like it ought to be part of Galactica or something like that. The Ziphites are strangers to David, but they give him up. And he says, these strangers have risen against me. And it's a particular um, desperate pain to be, to be betrayed by people who don't even know you. People who have no, no awareness of your own personal integrity, and yet they speak of you as though they do, and they betray you. There's a, that's a, that's a, a unique pain, a unique grief. Violent men have sought my life, he says. And that's a stark reality for David. These violent men are coming after him. He remembers what happened in Nod, does he not? Violent men took the life of innocent people seeking David. Sometimes we have to assess the reality of our situation. In contrast to our hopes and our expectation and our relationships with, with, with others. Sometimes we have to be careful and think about the reality of what's going on. Not everyone, not everyone is trustworthy. Not everyone is a friend. What are the marks of those who, who, um, who, do set God before them as opposed to the violent men who don't set God before them? What are the marks of those who do? In other words, those who are trustworthy. It's important to understand that they value truth and integrity. Their life is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, the display of godly character that is consistent through and through, whether private or public life. Those are people that you indeed can trust. And then again, he says, he says, Selah. Selah. A big, deep breath. A pause for reflection. Verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in thy faithfulness. It's interesting here. He says, behold. It is a, um, it's a, it's a word that says stop and see. Look. Take notice of this. It's intentional reflection. Determination not to be overwhelmed. Not to be overwhelmed by discouragement of dif because of difficult times and circumstances. He says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He is the one who girds up my, my, my mind, my will, my emotion. It's God that I set my trust in. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Vengeance again belongs to the Lord. Justice is God's decision, not ours. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Know that it's God's verdict. He will deliver his verdict in his time, in his way, according to his faithfulness. And then verse 6. Willingly I sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. It's interesting that David says, willingly, I will. 
Have you ever been in a spot where you need to say, um, God, I want to, I don't, I want to want to, but I have to connect the dots here and say that in reality, I don't want to. So can you help me want to? That's what he's saying here. I willing, willingly, I will sacrifice to you. It's interesting that the apostle Paul uh, uh, is clear about this. This is a statement of determination. The apostle Paul is very clear in saying to us, we have a choice to make. Colossians chapter three is the classic, the classic description of that. And there the apostle Paul writes, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, if that's your condition, if you've been raised up with Christ, do this. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And then throughout that chapter, all the way through verse 17, he gives multiple statements of discipline and volition. Set your mind is, is, the, is the, the word that, or the phrase that captures them all. Set your mind on this. It's an intentional thing. So David says, willingly, I set my mind. I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name. Why? Because it is good. That's where we started. That's where we started tonight. It is good. Fundamentally, foundationally, God is good. And that is the foundation of our faith. If we, get, if we begin to doubt that, we begin to doubt everything about God. God is good, period. For he has delivered me from all trouble. It's important to understand as well that our faith is confirmed even in our own experience. It's built up. It's established. It is rooted deeper. It's grown up even in the testimony of our experience from his perspective. It's important for us. We heard a number of people giving thanks tonight, praising God for things that God has accomplished. And what does that do? That is something we need to practice because it strengthens, it girds up, it, it, it enables our faith. And our faith is rooted, our faith is rooted in the goodness of God. And my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. It's interesting that that word satisfaction is translated triumphantly, exultantly in other places. It's the same word. I've looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. And I have to ask, what is the source of our satisfaction? Is it the annihilation of our enemies? Is that what David is saying? No, I think what's going on here is that the root of the source of David's satisfaction is surrendering to God's provision. Saying, God, you have it in your hands. We worshiped with that imagery tonight, didn't we? It's all in your hands, God, and I trust you absolutely. Why? Because I know you are good. You are. I like the imagery of surrendering to God's provision. Because with the Apostle Paul, we can say, I know that God, I know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Why? Because he foreknew those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to his image. And that's what's going on. We can trust ex absolutely that God's goodness is going to be manifested in our lives, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the enemies that betray us, regardless of the lies that are told, regardless of the, the puffing up of other egos. 
We can trust the fact that God is good and he is working even those difficult circumstances together for good to conform us to his image. We can say with Joseph at the end of Genesis, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. What can we say but thank you, God? Thank you, God, for that promise. Thank you, God, for the fact that you are good. Period. End of discussion. And my trust belongs to him. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you tonight for this truth that you are good. And we trust you implicitly. Regardless of our circumstances, we know that you are at work to accomplish your purposes, and that includes shaping us in your image. Lord, becoming more like you. We pray that this week, even when we find ourselves in the place of of discouragement, darkness, or, or, or even experiencing betrayal, Lord, we pray that you'd remind us of the fact that even in that, you are accomplishing good in our lives because you are making us more like yourself. And we trust you with that outcome. We trust you. And Lord, with David, we will say, willingly, I will. Give thanks to your name. For your name is good. In Jesus' name.